listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Maybe you can think back to when you were a, a young teenager. I don't know about you, but I look on those days with some fond memories. Um, I know that the Bible says that children are a joy uh, to their parents. That's what the Word of God says. In my case, my, my parents had to have three more to help that promise come true. And so when I think back to when I was a kid, especially a teenager, I, I did some ridiculous things. Um, some of my favorites, I, I can't go into these, uh, probably for legal reasons, but, uh, but because of time constraints. Uh, but I remember, I, I did all kinds of crazy things. I think my parents loved me. Uh, at the same time, I know they loved my siblings more because they didn't do these ridiculous things. Uh, when I think back in my childhood, teenage years, I think about uh, times I had my sisters call 911 and tell them that our mom was drowning in the pool. And then I was outside all of a sudden, which we didn't have a pool. So it was ridiculous. So the cops show up, and remember stories like that. Remember stories of when I tried to jump through a glass door at the top of some brick steps leading into our, the outside of our house. And at the last second, I, I remember thinking, I feel like Superman. And then when I was this far, I realized the glass door was actually closed. Ended up on top of my head on a concrete pad at the bottom, unconscious for about 15 minutes. Not a big deal. Uh, one of my favorites, though, is when I, was, uh, when I was in school, about the age of Jesus that we're going to see this morning. And uh, I put some Pop-Tarts in the microwave for a snack one day at school. And uh, I, was, I was a real, real bright, real bright, uh, highly intelligent child. And so I put the Pop-Tarts in and I went back to my seat about 30 or 40 feet away. And I looked back, went for my Pop-Tarts to heat up. All of a sudden, it looks like a fireworks show inside of the microwave. Because my family, we couldn't really afford Pop-Tarts. And so we weren't used to those. And so I, probably somebody in our church gave us Pop-Tarts. Well, I didn't know you were supposed to take the aluminum wrapper off of the Pop-Tarts. So I put the Pop-Tarts in the microwave. And uh, so what ended up happening, and so I'm sitting there just like, I'm not moving out of my seat. And my name is not on those Pop-Tarts, and so I'm not claiming them. And so uh, we have all these lightning, you know, it starts sparking. All of a sudden, the back of the microwave, no joke, burst into flames. Well, it was up against this wall where they had just got through painting uh, this huge, probably 15-foot-tall eagle on the wall, because that was our school mascot. And, well, the bottom of that eagle catches flame from its tail and burns all the way up until about its neck before they finally got this fire put out. And so, and I sat there the whole time, <laughs> and I promise you the school was like, if we find out who did this, we need somebody. I'm like, bro, those, I, I don't know. I, that was a Pop-Tart offering to the Lord. And at that point, they were no longer mine. I was done with them. Those are not my Pop-Tarts. But I think back on, the, on those days, I'm like, man, I did some really ridiculous stuff. Anybody there? At the same time, you, you kind of survive, you learn. And so as we look at Jesus this morning, this is the only really snapshot we have of his childhood and teenage years. And so it's important because Luke wants us to see these things. Here's what he wants to see, big picture, is that Jesus had to rise for the fallen, but he's looking forward. Luke could have just put that and said, yeah, yeah, Jesus, here's what you're going to do. Let's get to the, let's get to the nitty-gritty of his life. But what we see, even from a young child is that Christ was consumed and devoted with the will of his Father and the Word of God. That's what he was devoted to even from being a child. 
And so what we see here this morning is we see a, a real quick kind of snapshot just in these 30 or so verses. We see the, the life of Jesus up until he turns 30 years old. And next week, from chapter 2 to chapter 3, we see him from 12, we see an 18-year jump to when he's 30. Right here at the beginning of this passage, from verse 21 to 22, we see about a 12-year jump from when he's a baby to when he's 12 years old. And so this is, there's a, a good bit of time that's happening right here, but it happens just like this. So I don't want us to miss it. So we, Chris just read this, Luke chapter 2. Let's go back and look at that. So we picked up in verse number 21. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, again, we're not going to go into detail on all of these things, he was called Jesus. Now, why is that important? Well, we know in Matthew, Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. And it's important that we see his parents obeying the word of God here. So he was circumcised. He was called Jesus, the name that was given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, notice in verse number 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. Stop right there. We just read the passage, and so I'm just going to break down, look at the highlights of this. So that time of purification came after the circumcision. He was circumcised after about a week. This purification happened on about day 33 of his life. And this was according to the law. If you notice that phrase right there, according to the law, it's used five times. Everybody say five times. That's important. No other phrase is used in this section that we're reading right here, just in these verses that we're looking at this morning. No other phrase is used except for that one that many times. He says it five times. Why is that important? We need to know this because Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, wanted to obey the law of God. They wanted to obey every single thing they were supposed to, and so they did the things they were supposed to when they were supposed to do them. We ended up with a very kosher Jesus, and that's very good for us because that's the Christ that we need. Uh, Galatians chapter 4 talks about how Christ came under the law. He did. His parents kept the law. Not perfectly because they were sinners. But when it came to the time for purification, for circumcision, naming Jesus, they obeyed the word of God. So it says according to the law. It says this multiple times. Then we get down in verse number 25. And so they, they sacrifice. Let me, let me paint the picture for you. So we have Joseph and Mary. They come from the town of Nazareth. Everybody's like, I said it, but I'm not, I'm not real sure. So he can't hear me, but the Lord can. So they, they came from the city of Nazareth. Uh, and so the city of Nazareth was probably a small town of between 50 and 100 people. Not a very big town. Now notice they're coming into this city of Jerusalem, which has potentially hundreds of thousands of people. So these are poor, probably illiterate peasant folks. There's nothing special about them. And we've looked at it the past few weeks. The, the entrance of Christ into history is one of humility. There's no fanfare. Jesus is not really a big deal. His parents are not a big deal. He comes to shepherds. Those folks are not a big deal. Humility is what's driving this narrative. And so we have Mary and Joseph who aren't much of anything. And when they come to the temple... Uh, right there at, at verse 22, they purify. Uh, verse 23, as is written in the law, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And you can go back and look at Numbers, eight, uh, numbers 18 with that. And that's what's actually called a redemption price. Interesting language, as we'll see later on. But they had to pay a price of five shekels, which is about a week's income. That's a lot of money, especially for these folks who don't have very much money. They pay a, a week's uh, tax to the temple. This is their gift to God to say, hey, we want to redeem our son, the firstborn. And they did that with animals. They did it with uh, their kids, the firstborn. They had this redemption uh, price to pay. But you also see 
the other part of that price was there had to be an animal sacrifice. And so they had the choice of either some doves or some pigeons. We know that was reserved for those who are the most poor. And so it was not ideal to offer these to God, but it was accepted. God made room for that in Numbers chapter 18. If you were poor, you could pay this as part of the redemption price. Again, this is not them saying, hey, the only way that Jesus is going to be a redeemer is if we pay this price. This is their obedience to God saying, we are setting this kid apart. And all kids were part of that. So they paid the redemption price of five shekels. So they traveled from Nazareth to Jerusalem, which was about 140 miles and that's about a week's journey, especially if you have a pregnant lady with you. So then we get down to verse number 25. Now we see there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now this guy was important. He'd been there for a long time. But we see a couple of things about him. We see, and this man was righteous and devout. Now there's a, a slight difference there in righteous and devout. Righteous is how you treat other people. But devout, he was dedicated, committed to the religious rituals of the day. So this man is godly and he's been standing there waiting. But notice what he sees while he's waiting there. The author Luke, he uses these two words. He says he, he's looking for the consolation of Israel and he's looking for the revelation of God. So we have the consolation and this revelation. So we have Simeon who's right here, standing right on the precipice, looking back and saying, here's the old covenant that has been given to us from Moses. Here's the old promise from Abraham that's been given to us. We're looking back. But Simeon is also sitting here looking at the revelation. He knows that the Messiah is coming. And what's standing right here, what's that bridge between those two things, the old covenant and the new covenant? It's Jesus Christ. So we have Simeon who's sitting here looking at the constellation and the revelation of Israel saying, man, we're looking for Jesus, the Savior, this Messiah. He's been standing there. I imagine, I was thinking about Simeon this past week. I imagine he's sitting there at the temple day in and day out looking with anticipation of the Messiah. He knows it's going to be a small baby. That's what was told to him. But every day, every, every year, uh, there was this feast of Passover. And as the people came, they're coming with families. They're coming with babies. I'm sure Simeon for years had been like, Okay, is that, is that the child? God, you know, like secret, you know, undercover. Like, is that the child? Is that, no, it's not the child. Okay. Uh, but for years, he's looking, is that the child? Is that the child? And with every kid, he's got to be thinking, man, I hope this is the one. And it's not. Okay, maybe that's the one. Is that the baby? Okay, it's not. There's a little kid over there. Is that the one? It's not. But then when Jesus shows up, God comes to Simeon and says, that's the one. That's the one that you've been looking for. That's the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant. And this is an anticipation of the new covenant, which is going to be introduced with the blood of the Son of God. So we have Simeon, who is here. He's got to be stoked. And we see a celebration. And this is actually uh, the, the third time that we see a prophecy in the book of Luke so far. Uh, we see Mary. Uh, we see Zechariah. We have Mary's Magnificat. We have Zechariah's what's called the Benedictus. But then right here we have we have Simeon, and he actually, most of this comes not directly from Isaiah chapter uh, 49, but it comes a lot. And this is what Isaiah 49, 6 says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Isaiah, hundreds of years before, had been saying, I've got this light coming. Don't worry, it's coming. You're in the midst of darkness, it's coming. Notice what Simeon says here. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. His work here is done according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Here's where we get to the revelation. 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Isaiah is saying, man, there's a light coming. Simeon is, saying, Simeon is saying, there is a light that has arrived. Now notice what he calls the light right there in the middle of that proclamation. He says, for my eyes have seen salvation. Now he doesn't say, I've seen this plan come to fulfillment. He says, so salvation is not a what. It's not a what is happening we know that salvation is here as he holds a little baby. Salvation is a who. Salvation is not a what. Salvation is a who. Christianity is not about a code of conduct. It's not about a philosophy of life. It's about commitment to a person, the one who has redeemed you, who has called you by name. That's what Christianity is, and it follows here the tradition of thousands of years. Look at the end right there. Uh, after he gets through saying that, verse number 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Simeon is saying this. This kid is going to come in. He's going to split the country in two. There are going to be those who really dislike Jesus. And those are mostly the religious folks. He's saying Jesus is going to split the nation between the religious folks and really the Gentiles. The, the righteous folks who the culture wouldn't look at, the Jewish culture wouldn't look at them and say, man, these people are really righteous. But it's the people who are in need who say, man, we're not trying to redefine Jesus in our terms, but we want to believe and rest and trust in Jesus as our deliverer because we are in need. Those are the two camps. He says there, there are those who are, going to, who are going to love Jesus and those who are going to hate Jesus. Eventually, Simeon is saying, man, eventually Jesus is going to die for this right? That's, that's what he's telling Mary. This is for the rise and fall of many. And can I say this to us this morning, church? Because we have a, a lot of different vantage points on this. And I, I talk to people often who talk about the different perspectives of Jesus. But Jesus is still a unifying point for those who love him and who submit their lives to him. And, and I pray that's us this morning. That's why we're here. The only reason that we're here is because of Jesus. He is the one that unifies us. Nothing else, not the way you look, not the way you smell, not how much money you make, not just because it's 1030. It's like, I got nothing else to do on a Sunday morning, so I'll go hang out with these people. It's not because we all love the same songs. It's not be all because you all would rather listen to me than somebody else down the road. The reason that we're here this morning is because of Jesus. And at the same time, if we want to redefine Jesus, he is going to be a point of contention in your life. So here's what I mean by that. There are other religions who want to redefine Jesus. We could call these Mormons or Muslims or even a lot, even a lot in the Catholic tradition. Uh, Buddhists, they try to redefine Jesus to match their narrative, not the narrative of Scripture. There are even some here this morning who would say, the only reason I love Jesus is so that I can get something from him. That's called a prosperity gospel. We cannot redefine Jesus. And there are going to be some here this morning that when the light of Christ comes, they're not going to repent of their sin. They're going to reject him and say, that's not the Jesus that I really like. No, if we are unified in Christ, if you are one with Christ, then it is a life of submission and obedience to him. You've got to pick sides on that. That's the rise and fall of many in Israel, and that's true for us as well. If we keep going, if you look at verse number, uh, verse number 35, we see here Simeon is still talking to Mary. 
And he says, and the sword will pierce through your own soul also. I'm, it harkens back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. We call that the proto-evangelium. Proto it's the first time that the good news, proto being the first time, evangelium is the good news. And what, is, what does the author say there? In Genesis chapter 3, he says, there's going to be this snake. It's really going to hurt. Jesus, your offspring is going to crush its head, but it's going to bite your heel. And so here, I think back to this, to the same passage. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. Seeming to say, and Mary, being the mother of Jesus is going to bring much pain and suffering to you. And this is the first time, by the way, and we just talked about it, that we see the cross looming in the distance. So he says, man, this kid is not just like, hey, this kid is perfect. He's like a little angel. There's going to be much strife surrounding the life of Jesus. We get down to verse number 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna. And this is an actual picture of her. Um, I'm just kidding. If she was still alive today. <laughs> but there was this prophetess, Anna. And it says here that she's, she's really old. And if you look at the Greek, it's hard to figure out, well, from the time she was a virgin, what does that mean? She get, did she get married when she was seven? Did, was that, you know, all we know is this, that she was really old. We don't know if she had been widowed for 84 years or until she was 84 years old. Either way, that's pretty ancient. Here's what also I know, and I'll say this on behalf of our church, is that God wants to use old people. We've seen this already in this, in this book, and I would say this. Older folks, your gray hair and mine, that people are like, why do you get it so, cut so, so short on the sides? Because it's just gray, man. Why don't you grow your beard back? Because it's gray. And so I feel welcome here by the folks who have gray hair. Uh, but your gray hair, your aching bones, your arthritic joints, they are welcome here at South Point. They are. We love having older folks. Y'all are some of my favorite people. And I mean that in all sincerity. People ask me all the time, hey, what is your church demographic? What is, it, what is its makeup like? You know, you're kind of youngish, or at least you used to be. And so is your church mostly, mostly kind of youngish? And I'm like, man, we've got a great mix. I love it. We had a pastor's meeting yesterday, and we were talking about new folks who have showed up just the past few months. And I'm like, the demographic of most of those folks uh, is almost my parents' age. And I love that. I wasn't like, oh, man, what are we doing with it? No, I was, I was celebrating the fact that we have older folks coming in. We need older folks and younger folks. We see this right here in the passage of Luke. And so Luke celebrates Anna. We celebrate uh, those who are more advanced. Like I call my dad, a little more seasoned in years. So she is uh, uh, exuberant to see Jesus Christ as well. She gives thanks to God. She's with Simeon hanging out. Verse number 39. And when they had performed everything according to what? We see for the last time here. According to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, verse 40. This is important. And for some of us parents, we're going to see this and be like, man, well, uh, it, we're going to think probably one of two things. I can never live up to this standard, but I really want to. Then the other ones of us, we're going to make excuses and say, ah, he's Jesus. If I had kid Jesus, of course I'd be a great parent. But notice in verse number 40, and the child talking about Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, what have we said about Mary and Joseph so far? And I would ask us the question, how does this happen? How does it happen that our kids are filled with the wisdom and knowledge of God? And parents, it cannot happen primarily here on Sundays or primarily on Wednesday nights with our, with our students at Collide. It cannot primarily happen with our kids back here in our kids' areas. It cannot primarily happen there. It has to begin in the home. Your kids are watching the way that you serve and submit and obey the law of God. They are. They're picking up on that. And at the same time, this is not a recipe for success. 
And some of y'all know that. Some of your parents know that. Some of you know that with your siblings. That just because you point your kids to God does not mean they're going to be walking in the way of God forever and ever and things are going to go well with you and there's never going to be any kid who goes, I'm telling you, I was on the verge of falling off the road many times. And I could tell you about my sisters, you know, uh, who are even closer than that, you know, than, than me. And we were pointing to Christ all throughout our childhood. This is not a recipe for success. But I would also ask you, what is the treasure that you're placing in front of your children? What are you teaching them to value? Is it money? Is it more success? Is it better education? Because the treasure that's going to last in this lifetime and for all of eternity is Jesus Christ. And at that point, then we leave the results up to God. So this is not a recipe. You're like, okay, well, you told me to do this. So I'm going to check all my boxes. No, we point our kids to, to Christ constantly. And I would say this to you parents. Some of you are like, man, you don't understand my situation. And that makes me feel terrible. There is no failing in parenting that cannot and has not been redeemed by Jesus. And there are some here this morning who need to hear that. And I need to hear that. There is no failure in parenting that cannot be redeemed by Jesus. And so rest in that this morning. Then we pick up in verse number 41, and we're going to see just how great these parents are, right? So we have Joseph and Mary who are going into this giant town. They're not really familiar with this. They go every year. This is the first time they brought Jesus. Verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he was 12, they went according to that custom, verse 43. And then when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, this is where I should have put like a really good left behind joke in uh, about Nikolai Carpathia or something like that, but I didn't because Jesus stayed behind. He wasn't left behind, okay? Uh, his parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Now, have you ever lost your kid in public? Unintentionally? <laughs> Some of you are like, wait, what did, what did he just say? Yeah, yeah, that's the kind of parent that I am, okay? Uh, I need to be redeemed by Jesus. But have you ever lost your kid in public? Like your heart stops. You turn around and you think he's there. And then your kids think it's so funny, you know, they're over here in the, in the clothing, you know, roundabout thing that they have, you know, with a thousand shirts, and they're in there just hiding. And it's like, where's your brother? We're playing hide and go seek, so I don't know. And it's like, what in the world? You feel that. So your heart skips a beat, like for a minute, and you're just, you're freaking out. And you feel like you're just the worst parent in the world. And then your mind goes to like 2020 and Dateline episodes. And you're like, I'm going to be a documentary. Like, what in the world? Like, you, your body can't stop. Like, it's crazy. That's what Mary and Joseph were feeling for days. For days. So they're in this big new town. Their son is God, and they lose him. That's not great on the resume. So when I talk about good parenting, I'm kind of talking about Mary and Joseph, <laughs> you know. But notice it says that they expect him to be with the group. So this is like back in the golden years, right? Hey, be home by dark. That's what they were saying. So for him to be kind of with the group, they were expecting that. It was just like, hey, see you tonight. Be home by dinner. No big deal. We'll ring the bell. Make sure you're there. That's what, that's what they expected of Jesus. But they couldn't find him. Now, also, quick side note, I think we think about Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Like, they were just a, a trio. But Mark 6 actually says that Mary and Joseph had other kids. We don't know how many other kids. He had at least a few brothers. It doesn't talk about his sisters, but we know that he had some because it says that. We have Jesus' brothers' names. We don't have his sisters' names. But Mary and Joseph, they don't have just Jesus to worry about. So until you, unless you're like, I mean, they only had one thing to worry about. They had multiple kids. So they're, they're freaking out. 
And they're trying to make sure all these other kids are fed and they're all wrangled, you know, like a herd of cats. And, uh, and then they're blaming each other. I thought you were watching Jesus. I thought you were watching Jesus. We lost the son of God, you know? And so they're freaking out. So they start going, they decide to go back and they find Jesus where? In the temple. And what is he doing there? They went back a day's journey. In verse number 47, they found him sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So we see Jesus here is the center of attention. And in verse number 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding of his answers. And we see this word amazed, and we've seen the word marveled multiple times over the past few weeks. This is basically saying they recognize the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit. But then look at the next verse and see what uh, Mary's response is. And when his parents saw him, Mary and Joseph, they were astonished. Now, that's not the same word as amazed, because amazed is just like, wow, that's incredible. The Holy Spirit is upon this kid, this 12-year-old kid. But his parents were astonished. And what that word means, it means they were impressed by this, they were amazed, but it was also beginning to change their thinking about their son. And so their heart was beginning to be moved. Now, if you read some of the, some of the, uh, of the other gospels that we don't include in the real Bible, but what we might call apocryphal or things that were other, like the gospel of Thomas, things like those that may be really good writing, but I don't think they were inspired by God because if they had been, they'd be in part of the 66 books. When you go and read those, they actually talk about Jesus as a child performing miracles as a little kid. And some of them talk about how uh, they, they say that Joseph was, uh, was a carpenter, and even in his, his workshop, he would take pieces of wood that Joseph had cut too short, and Jesus would make them longer uh, as a miracle. I think that's kind of interesting. And people ask me, hey, did Jesus, you know, could he just like show up at a, a kid's birthday party and like be the magician? Probably not. And here's why, because at this moment, his parents are like, whoa. This kid is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if they had seen those miracles before, they'd been like, oh yeah, Jesus does that kind of stuff all the time. He's always making the you know, squirrels in the road come back to life. But, but they didn't do that. They were astonished at this point. And notice what his mom says to him. She says in verse number, at the, at the end of verse 48, behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, um, this is, probably very stern, she, she could have laid into him, man. She could have taken one of those two by fours and just beat him with it. But she doesn't. She's like, hey, just so you know, we were kind of freaking out for a while, okay? Notice what Jesus' response says. And we're going to say, man, this is, this is kind of rude, but verse number 49, but it's not rude. He said to them, Jesus said to them, and these are the first words recorded by Jesus ever. He said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. Now notice he doesn't talk about Joseph because that's not Joseph's house. Joseph's house is 140 miles away. Joseph, is, I mean, Jesus right here is saying, he's not meaning this any disrespect to his earthly father, Joseph, but he's saying, my divine necessity is to be right here doing the will of my father. We've never seen anybody else call the temple their father's house. Not Moses, not Abraham, not David, not Solomon, you know, guys who actually built this temple. No prophet, no king had ever said, this is my father's house. Jesus is the first person. And the reason this is important is because Jesus is identifying not just with the will and the work of the father, but Jesus is identifying with the father. He's saying, I and the father are one. And this is what I am supposed to be doing. It is the most important thing for me to be here. And then look at verse 50. Do your kids ever say anything crazy? And you just look at them like, 
is there anything happening between your ears? Do you ever? I don't. <laughs> um, maybe. But I know my parents did. But you know, like when you're, you're a teenager and they're like, well, I don't like your rules. And you're like, well, go live somewhere else. And they're like, okay, I will. I'm going to take my $47 and I'm going to go live out on my own. I'm going to pay my own bills. You kids ever say that? You're just like, okie dokie. Verse number 50, that's that. So Mary and Joseph, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. <laughs> they're just like, Okie dokie, Jesus. <laughs> if you say so, now it's time to go home. Um, so th they don't understand what's going on. But verse 51, notice this. Jesus, he's not just like, boom, boom, boom. I can't be wrong. Verse 51, notice what he did. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Children, when we are obedient to our parents, that is us being obedient to God. When we are submitting to the will of our parents, as long as it is right and godly, we are submitting to the will of God. Jesus was submissive here to God and to his parents. The last thing I want us to see in this passage, notice how, and we've seen Mary do this a few times, we talked about it. And his mother, at the end of verse 51, and his mother treasured all of these things in her heart. So notice her perspective. Jesus' words... We're like, this is strange. Let me ask you this. What is your response to the word of God when it is confusing or baffling to you? Is your response to poke holes in it? Is your response to rely on your own philosophies, on your own feelings, on your own emotions, on your own experiences? Is it to, to deconstruct your faith and saying, I don't know if I understand that, and so it must not be right? Or is it to lean into that, to choose to believe the truth of God's word? to submit yourself to it, to repent of the areas of sin, to, to rest in it, even though you may not know exactly what it means right now, to pursue it, to seek answers in community, to read more about it, to grasp it, because it's the word of God and not your own word. The mystery of Christ, it invites us in. It challenges us. It presses against the things that we hold dear. But it also, over time, illuminates the truth of God's word to us. A lot of times, it's not going to be immediate. Jesus doesn't say, Mother, let me tell you about everything that's about to happen. Because he could have, but he doesn't. He said, okay, I'm going to submit to you, and we'll figure it out later. The light of Christ is the same way. When I was in college, uh, and just for years, I've, I played music. And so I remember working on a, a, on a Bach cello suite on a, on a bass that I was playing. And I would work for day in, day out, trying to figure out this, this Bach cello suite, which was not written for a six-string electric bass, by the way. And so I remember trying to, trying to get this just beautiful, not just get the notes right, but make it flow and make it sound amazing. I worked day in, day out. And then one morning I woke up, and boom, it just fit. And everything under my hands just flowed, and it sounded amazing. And I could play it over and over, and it sounded really good. And it was almost effortless. And it wasn't just like, you know what? I think I'm going to learn that Bach cello suite in F minor because that sounds like something fun to do. No, I worked and worked and I pursued that. But then it clicked just like that. So there are going to be plenty of times when we don't understand something. We've got to pursue the truth, pursue. But then eventually the light of Christ steps in and it melts away the fog and it might take time. And there are going to be some of us here and some of the folks you work with and maybe your kids and maybe your parents and maybe your brother or sister. And they're just like, I just don't grasp that. 
but be faithful in pursuing the truth for yourself and for them. Treasure up the word of God in your heart, and eventually it will become clear. It will become clear. So what does this passage say about Jesus? I think there, it says five things that are, that are important for us in the way that we live our lives. But the first one is this, is that Jesus was, is, and will be the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation. All of those things must be true because we see right here, we see Simeon and Anna who are faithfully waiting for the promised Messiah to come. And once he finally arrives, they're like, yes, he's here. This is what has been promised. He's here right now. And this is what's going to happen. We have this prophecy. But here's why that's important and good news for us, because the same is true for us. Even though we can look back and say, okay, this Jesus was here. His work on earth was done. And now he's ascended to the right hand of God, the father. But friend, Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin by dying on the cross for us. He is saving us from the power of sin that's in our life through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus will save us from the presence of sin when we are with him forever. That's good news. So wherever you are on that journey, you're like, I don't know if I can just trust in Jesus, the justifying work of Christ on my behalf. I don't know if I've received that. I haven't repented of my sin yet. I would say, look to Jesus. And if you're struggling with sin, whatever that is, with the way that you spend your time or your money or what you look like or look at or the way you, or what you look like or the way you treat your wife, look to Jesus. He wants to save you from that. And in the midst of despair, when it all seems hopeless, and you're just like, I can't live this life anymore. I've been there recently. You're just like, I, I don't understand. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He was and is and will be the fulfillment of all salvation. Secondly, the thing we see about Jesus here is that no matter the cost, Jesus was devoted to the will and to the word of the Father. Jesus exuded great zeal about the word of God. And shouldn't we be excited about the word of God the same way that the son of God was? He wanted to grow and learn in stature and in wisdom. And I think about Simeon. I think here, what does he say? He begins his prophecy by saying, okay, now I can die in peace. In other words, my work here on earth is done. I've seen Jesus. Could we say the same thing? That our lives are founded on and consumed by knowing and reflecting Jesus Christ. Because we're going to get to some point in our lives and think, man, I, I don't know if I've accomplished what I want to accomplish, or I've got way more that I want to accomplish. But my prayer for all of us is that Christ would be known and exalted through our lives. And when we reach the end, whenever that is, whether you're 30 or 90 years old, whatever that is, we could say, man, my work is done because I knew Jesus and I made him known. Jesus was devoted to the will and to the word of the Father. The next thing we see, which is um, always difficult at some point in our lives, but we see that Jesus submitted to authority, which is fundamentally a gift of God. Authority is fundamentally a gift from God. But we know that because of the fall, it's often exercised for personal gain. But I would say this, we should not be fundamentally averse to authority. And that's where we are in our culture. And you can say, oh man, look at these millennials. Look at these Gen X, Y, Zers. But the same is true for us. 
Like, man, look at these hipsters. I'm always like, look at the hippies. <laughs> or do you forget Woodstock? Do you forget the 60s? Do you forget the 50s? When this is our, And we can go back, and then they were saying, hey, remember the 20s? Remember the late 1890s? Like, we've been this way. This is part of who we are. We rebel against authority. But Christ submitted to authority. Often we will submit to, to church leaders as long as they don't ask us to be outside of our comfort zone. Or we'll submit to the government as long as they advocate for policies that we appreciate. Or wives will even submit to their husbands as long as the husband is providing for the emotional needs of the wife. And we'll even submit to God as long as it's comfortable and he doesn't press against my preferences and he doesn't require too much. But can I tell you something, friend? If that is your perspective on any of those things, especially God, Jesus says to take up your cross and to follow him. That is a life of submission. And Jesus exemplified submission. The fourth thing that we see this morning is that Jesus will always displace things from their normal habitat in our lives. That word habitat is important because that's where they, they live and fester and flourish and grow. That's why I think that word is so important. Maybe you're familiar with the second law of thermodynamics, like I am, since Google exists. But uh, if, if, you, uh, if, you're, if, if something is in motion, unless something acts upon that thing, it's going to remain in motion. And that's actually how we end up with the second law of thermodynamics. But that's called inertia. Something, if it's moving, it's just going to keep moving unless something counteracts it. You're like, yeah, but it's eventually going to slow to a roll. Maybe because of gravity or friction or whatever that is. But if something's moving, it's just going to keep moving. Such is true with our lives. We, we kind of begin our lives, and, and maybe you've, you've pushed off from, uh, from the dock, and you're like, hey, there's my life. And you're going. And, and if you don't really consider the direction that you're moving in, Jesus Christ will always be pushed to the periphery. He always will be. Because there are things in this world that are vying to be the center of our lives. And if we just kind of keep going along nonchalantly, never considering what the center of my life is, then it's not going to be Jesus. You're not going to haphazardly become a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples of Jesus. You cannot make disciples of Jesus if your life is on autopilot. And we see here that Jesus, that salvation is not just a what, but salvation is a who. And Jesus is a person who is the Son of God. And if Jesus is the Son of God, he must be the center of your life. It demands that. It requires it. If Jesus is the Son of God, he must be the center of your life. That means everything else in your life, the things that you are pursuing, your relationships, your money, the place you live, what kind of house you live in, all of those things must then revolve around and be subservient to Jesus Christ at center. If Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The last thing, and we see this with the imagery that was painted by Simeon, but the light of Christ brings the doom of condemnation or the hope of salvation. The difference here is if you are in Christ or not in Christ. Because I can talk about the life of Christ, and I can say, man, rest in him, trust in him. And if Christ were to show up right now, you're going to have one of two responses. Either, either if Christ were to arrive and the light of Christ were to be here, it would be a reminder of your failures. 
your failure to repent of your sin, or if Christ were to show up, it would be a reminder that you are forgiven, that you are in Christ. But this morning, you're like, ah, I don't know where I am, or I'm over here, and I don't want to be reminded of my failure all the time. I don't want to keep working for the favor of God and always failing over and over. And I would say, okay, that's great. Friend, because this morning we have two responses. Because Christ is coming again, you're going to stand before him face to face, and there's going to be one of two responses, and you can make that response today. That response is either going to be the heart of a rebel who is going to turn away from God, or it's going to be the soul of a repentant person. And you can repent from trying to earn God's favor and, and enter into a relationship by your own power and resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you, which one of those is you? Is your life marked as being a rebel or by being repentant? Are you not in Christ? Are you outside of Christ and doomed? And so when, we, when Christ comes back, it's going to be the doom of condemnation or is there going to be the hope of salvation? Because here's what we see about Jesus in this, in this passage. Here's why this is so spectacular. It's because we don't have to go to a temple anymore because Christ came to dwell and to live and to tabernacle, to live among us. That's really good news. He came down here. We don't have a great high priest anymore because Jesus is our mediator. We don't have to make a sacrifice day in, week in, month in, and year out. We don't have to make a sacrifice because Jesus is the Lamb of God. You see, Christ's redemption was purchased for five shekels of silver and for two small birds. But our redemption was purchased with 30 shekels of silver and the life of Jesus Christ as our Savior. When Jesus was obeying and submitting to his parents, he did that so he could live a perfect life. But when he was on the cross, he was submitting to the will of the Father, which required a perfect sacrificial death. The heart of Mary was pierced. But when Christ was on the cross, his hands and his feet were pierced and his heart was broken, not just for Mary's son, but for us as sinners. But here's the good news is that when his parents went looking for him for three days, they finally found him there in the temple. But when the women went to the tomb and they looked for Jesus after three days, Jesus was not there because he had risen and he was alive. Jesus came down to identify with us as the fallen people so that we as the fallen could identify with him who was alive and who had risen. We don't have to celebrate this feast of Passover once a year because we get to celebrate what Christ has done as not just a culmination, but as a fulfillment of this prophecy. We get to celebrate that each and every week. And so as we celebrate this table that we call communion, it's very much part of the same feast that Mary and Joseph were celebrating with Jesus but they were looking forward to their Savior, to their Messiah, and they had him right there with them. We're looking back and saying, Christ's work is finished, and he has sent his Spirit to renew and restore hearts and lives. Our response should be one of remembering what Jesus has done, of repenting of our sin, whether it's for the first time or yet again, because that's who we are. And we should be of people who find rejoicing in the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. And there's great hope in that salvation.